Well, it's very good to see you this morning. And I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John, the 12th chapter. We've read earlier in our call to worship about how Jesus entered Jerusalem. But now we're going to go a little bit later into that 12th chapter. And we're going to look at what happened after that. It's page 899 in your pew Bible. It's John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. And this is what we read. Now some among those who went up to worship at the feast were, were Greeks. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now why would they have gone to, uh, why would they have gone to Philip instead of another? Well, for one thing, he had a Greek or a Gentile name. And Philip went and told Andrew, also Jewish, but had a Gentile name. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Friends, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was coming to die. He not only expected to die, he intended to die. And John, in his gospel, perhaps more than any of the other gospel writers, makes it so clear that Jesus' death was the triumph. 
in the triumphal entry. And he shows us this in several ways. In a prologue that no other gospel writers include, John gives an account of what happened after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in the previous chapter. He tells how a banquet was held in his honor, in Jesus' honor. And at that banquet, how Mary, Lazarus' sister, had anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfumed oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And Judas, the Judas we know, the Judas who betrayed Jesus, protested. Mary was wasting costly oil on Jesus. Better to sell it and give the proceeds to the poor. And Jesus says in response to Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, which I understand to be so that she may keep the rest of it, the part she isn't using on my feet, for the day of my burial. Jesus links Mary's anointing of his feet with, <clears throat> with, the, <clears throat> excuse me, with the imminent preparation of his entire body for burial. He entered Jerusalem to die. John also tells us of the chief priests and their tremendous frustration at all the numbers of people who are believing in Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they decide, and you see this at the beginning of John chapter 12, they decide not only must Jesus be killed, but Lazarus must be killed as well. Lazarus, the evidence of the miracle that Jesus did. And then when Jesus enters Jerusalem, John tells us that the, t the tension worsened, that the eyewitnesses of the Lazarus miracle tell Passover pilgrims in Jerusalem all about it, and they point Jesus out to them, and they begin to go to Jesus also. They join the ranks of his followers, and now the Pharisees are desperate. And they begin to blame one another for being hesitant to act on their resolve. They say to one another, John tells us, you see that you are gaining nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. In other words, they're turning to one another and saying, <laughs> they're saying, look, the longer we wait, the worse it gets. You're holding, you are holding off, not mine, you're holding off killing Jesus. Becoming that murderer is getting us nowhere. Now, you understand the assumption behind this. The assumption behind all of this is that the surest and the quickest way to end the madness of following Jesus Christ is to kill him. The quickest way is to defeat him with death. But they are exactly wrong. They're dealing with God here. His foolishness is wiser than the world's most devious wisdom. His, his weakness is stronger than the world's most terrible power. Jesus' death is the triumph that Jesus has entered Jerusalem to lay hold of. And John goes on to make exactly this point because he next tells us about a party of Greeks who come to ask if they can meet with Jesus. They come to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And to this point in Jesus' entire ministry, he has often spoken about his hour. 
but always in the future. He's always said the hour is coming. The hour is coming when the Father will be glorified in the Son and when the Son will be glorified in the Father. But now Jesus says the hour has come. It has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. And he's talking about his death. He immediately goes on in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It is by by dying that Jesus will impart the life that is in him to others. He has come to die. And that life that he has come to impart, as you know from Jesus' description, uh, John's description in the first chapter in the prologue of his entire gospel, that life he calls the light of men. Because without having that life in us, we live in darkness. Without that life that was in Christ being given to us, we ourselves live in darkness. Our souls live in darkness. In our internal, our inner being, our spiritual being, we're in darkness. There is no spiritual counterpart to the sun in them, in their spiritual being. The most important part of them is dark. And I think people know this. And so they go about their lives, honestly, and the best light that they can come up with is some sort of artificial light that is in them, some Christ substitute, honestly, though they don't know that that is what it is. That life that Christ came to impart is the light of men, and that life is communion with God. It is true fellowship with the Father and the Son. It's sharing in the fellowship of their love. It's coming to know the love of God for yourself The very love he has for Christ, that is what is meant by eternal life. And unless the grain of wheat dies, it will yield nothing. So for the triumph of eternal life, Jesus must die. He must die in order to overcome death. He must die to defeat death for us. And in so doing, he will draw all people to himself. You see, in the Greeks who came to him, in that party of Greeks, he saw the world at his doorstep, the world knocking at the door, the world waiting. And he says, my hour has come. But I don't want to stop there as we think about this together today. Jesus goes on immediately to underscore that there is also a death for us that is glorious. And that death that we must die is no more a biological necessity for us than Jesus' death was a biological necessity for him. But that death that we also must die is a spiritual necessity for us. Jesus says it this way. In verses 25 and 26, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And the Father 
will honor him. Hear the comparison. Hear it. As the son must die in order to give us life, we must die in order to receive it. You hear the comparison? The life we must die to is is living for ourselves. It's living for our own will to be done rather than for God's glory, rather than for God's will. Before God, that life, you see, it is indefensible. Before God, that life is idolatrous. And yet you can say, Kurt, for example, I'm not a Christian. And I live my life the way I want to live it, but it's not just all about me. I, I love my wife. I love my children. I want to maybe help my grandchildren go through, through college. I want to make the world a better place. I, I'm part of these charitable organizations. I'm part of these movements to clean up the environment. This is the truth. No one's saying that that life is all bad. Not at all. What's being said is that all those good things are, those, are simply justifications that are invoked to be an idolater. To justify the idolatry of living for self. For our own will. Rather than for God's glory. And for who he is. And it is not defensible. And further, it is not sustainable. It is not sustainable, a sustainable life. The only question about that life, the only question about life lived that way is which death will end it. Death at the graveside or death to self? An act of divine judgment or an act of repentance? Will it be the death that is unto death that ends it? Will it be, or will it be death unto life that ends it? This dying to self, this hating one's life in the world, this dying to self is not a closed-ended act of self-will. It's completely the opposite. This dying to self is an open-ended act of surrender to Christ's will. In order to follow him. As Jesus put it, if anyone serves me, you see the surrender motif there and this idea of surrender, of, of, of serving him, he must follow me. And that is context. He must follow me in his dying as I have died. And then he adds, and if anyone serves me, if this is the course that anyone takes, my father will honor him. And when people do this, they re- what they receive in exchange for that life that died is eternal life. That eternal life is this fellowship we enter into with the Father and the Son forever through the Holy Spirit. It is a turning away from ourselves to Christ. So the Christ becomes the person. Christ becomes the man in my life. 
and not myself. This is the power of the cross. Christ uniting us with himself through his death in order to unite us with his life. This is the triumph in the triumphal entry. Jesus put it this way, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The power of the cross is known. It is experienced in the woman or in the man or in the child who feels Christ drawing them out of themselves and into himself. Really from one faith to another faith. So their life becomes united with his life. And this fellowship extends to sharing death with Christ in order to share life with Christ. His death being the one death on the cross. Our death being the death to self. Well at this point, Jesus has presented a great deal in the way of response to the news. Some Greeks just want to talk to him. I suppose Philip and Andrew are thinking, man, I had no idea he was going to unload on us like that. And Jesus pauses. Now he's going to go ahead in John, and he's going to speak about his death in terms of his going to the Father. Simple terms. But here he pauses because he will go to the Father through blind suffering. He's going to be our sin bearer. That's not discussed in this passage, but many others. He has to go to the Father through blind suffering. And that's what's before him when he says this. When he says, Now my soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now you hear, don't you, the choice that's before Jesus? The choice he has to make? The choice is whether to pray, Father, save me from this hour. Or to pray, Father, glorify your name. That's what separates false messiahs. That's what separates false Christs and false saviors from the true Christ. That in the hour of necessary agony, And in an hour of necessary suffering, Jesus does not pray, save me from it. But he prays, Father, glorify yourself through it. And here is submission. Born of a deep love for God. Identity completely wrapped up in God. And I have to say that just as before when Jesus spoke of his dying and then spoke of the necessity of our dying, as he speaks of this at this point, he then goes on to speak, or at least the implication is is surely for us. I'm going to say very honestly that what separates the true follower of Christ from the fan, 
from the admirer of Christ. What separates the true follower of Christ from a genuine admirer of Christ is that in the face of fire or flood or cancer or a cross, the true follower of Christ prays, Father, glorify yourself through it. And the promise of Jesus stands and the Father will honor him through it. You hear me? God's voice thunders from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And Jesus responds, now is the judgment on this world or of this world. Because in its rejection, the world is bringing judgment upon itself. The world is condemning itself and rejecting Christ. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Unless there be any doubt about whether Jesus is talking about his death. He immediately goes on to say, John immediately goes on to say, but these things he said, so we would know that he was talking about, these things he said because he was talking about his death. Well, this is our Savior. This is Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. That when Jesus next speaks, after saying, when I am lifted up, he refers to himself in verses 35 and 36 four times. He refers to himself as light. And you know what? When he previously spoke of the necessity of his being lifted up in death, back in John chapter 8, verse 28, he had just before that declared, I am the light of the world. And back in John chapter 3, when he had compared himself in his pending death to the fiery bronze serpent, fiery, bronze serpent that's shiny brilliant beaming brass image of a serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness so Israel had only to look at it to be healed this is where he had compared he compared himself to that serpent being lifted up that fiery bronze serpent and I hope you see the connection. When Jesus speaks of his being lifted up, his being lifted up from the earth, the connection between his being lifted up from the earth in death and light, being lifted up on a light stand so it can be fully viewed. So its illumination and its brightness can be seen for what it truly is. Because in being lifted up, Jesus knew 
was in being lifted up this way that he would be seen for who he is. That he would be seen as the light of the world that is for the Jew and also for the Gentile, for all peoples. He would be seen as the light that is from God that darkness cannot extinguish, that overcomes darkness. That he would be seen as the light that shines forever. He's eternal in order to give light. The truth over all that reveals the truth about us. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The worst attempt to destroy him would only prove that Jesus Christ, the light, is eternal and revealed that it is of God, that he was of God completely and totally and forever. That the light of the world is Christ. His death would be unique because he himself was unique. His would not be a death unto death because he's eternal. His death was not a mortal necessity and his death would not be a moral necessity. Those necessities lie with us. But for love's sake, he took them on himself. And having done so, he now draws us to himself to share in the very life that is in Christ, eternal life, fellowship with the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit forever. What a victory. How Satan was cast out when Christ was lifted up. This is the triumph of the triumphal entry because Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this portion of your word and pray that you would apply it to our hearts and to our lives. I thank you that it speaks for itself. It speaks under the impulse of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your Spirit would be at work in every single one of us. That we also, every one of us, would know the power of the cross. Amen.